the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who hear his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. Brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a knock on your door. You go to see it. It's the police. How do you feel? The, your cell phone rings. You look to see who it is. It's your dad. How do you feel? The bell rings, class is dismissed, and the teacher asks you to stick around for a few minutes after class. How do you feel? You don't know how you feel. I haven't given you enough context. The police are at your door. What time of day is it? Is it the afternoon? Is it 3 a.m.? Did you call the police or were the police called on you? That will help you determine how you feel. Do you talk to your dad often? Does he call often? Then it's probably not a big deal that he's calling you again. But if you never hear from him, no matter what, then the fact that he's calling you might cause some alarm. Are you a straight-A student? Did you just hand in a wonderful project on which you did your best? Or do you know exactly why your teacher is calling you to stay after class? Because during that class period, you were not on your best behavior. The context determines how you feel. That's what context is. It's the setting, it's the time, it's the place, it's the, the facts and the events surrounding something that help us make sense of what's going on. You woke up this morning and at some point you probably looked in a mirror. How did you feel when you looked at yourself? The context in which you understand who you are will determine how you feel. You're here sitting in church. We've sung some hymns. We've done the liturgy together. How have you felt so far? The context in which you understand yourself and your relationship with God and who God is will determine how you feel. As we take a closer look at the psalm that we sang together and now we're going to read together, how does the psalmist want us to understand our context? Understand the facts that surround us. How does the psalmist feel about his relationship with God? If God knocks on his door and shows up, how does the psalmist feel when he opens up? Feels pretty good. How does he start his psalm out? Praise the Lord. Three words in English, it's one word in Hebrew, and you already know it. I'm sure you do. There's a 70% off sale at Macy's. Hallelujah! The Cowboys finally won a game. Hallelujah! Hallelujah means praise the Lord. And even if in our modern vocabulary, even non-Christians use this word, we've taken a couple steps away from its original meaning. Here the psalmist, of course, wants to use it correctly. Not only does he want to praise the Lord and he's excited about it, he wants us to as well. Because he says, I will extol the Lord with all my heart. I'm going to be perfectly honest with you, brothers and sisters. As soon as I read that verse in preparation for today, my first thought was, when's the last time I did anything with my whole heart? 
Really, when's the last time you or I did anything with 100% of who we are? With 100% of our attention, of our focus? You know, social media, for all its benefits and all its blessings, really has trained me, and you probably as well, to have an attention span that lasts just a couple seconds, right? You see another post, do I like it, do I not like it? Then you move on. According to one source, one experiment, the human brain can maintain deep focus, can focus on one thing for a maximum of 45 seconds, and then you're cashed out. I've been preaching for longer than 45 seconds, so you don't think I realize that you're already tempted to think about other stuff? I understand. But it seems bio biologically impossible to do anything with 100% of our mind and our focus and our attention. But it's also emotionally, spiritually impossible to worship God with 100% with our whole heart. I don't want to disparage your reasons for coming to church today. We're glad that you're here. We're happy that you're here, but I think it's more than safe to say that everyone in this room, myself included, struggles to be at 100% when it comes to coming into God's house and worshiping him, don't we? Struggles to feel 100% thankful at every moment of every day. And the reason why I feel safe in saying that is because of what the Bible reveals about you and me. The Bible reveals that each of us is born with what's called a sinful nature, a voice in our hearts that doesn't want to give God credit for anything. The sinful nature wants to make us the heroes of our own story. The food that's on your table is because you worked so hard and earned that paycheck and went and got it. The good habits that you've been able to cultivate are because you put in the hard work. The bad habits that you've been able to kick are because you are working so hard at becoming a good person. The good things in your life are because you work so hard to get them. But it's not hard to see through that and expose it as a lie, is it? I didn't raise, cultivate, or plant my food. I had to get it from somewhere, so it doesn't make sense for me to take credit for the food on my table, does it? Who's the person that keeps getting in my way of being the person I know I should be? Who is it that throws a stick in the spokes of my bicycle wheel when I'm trying to develop good habits and kick bad habits? Who's the person that's responsible for me taking two steps back every time I try to take one step forward? It's me. We are not the heroes of our own story, brothers and sisters. We are much more like the villains. We keep sabotaging ourselves. When we realize that, though, we realize how impossible it is to give God the worship he deserves, to give God the credit and the thanks that he deserves. Because what would God want to do with thanks and praise from wicked, sinful lips such as mine. God is sitting up in heaven. He's holy. He is morally perfect. What does he want to do with me, a sinner? 
See, the sinful nature wants to bend inward, to look at itself, to dwell on itself, to circulate around itself, to make itself the hero of our own story, but we know how little sense that makes. Following the psalmist's thought in Psalm 111, we see what the solution is. If we look in our own hearts and see nothing but problems, it's easy. Stop looking at yourself. Stop dwelling on yourself. Let the psalmist direct our attention where it needs to go to understand our proper context. He starts by saying he wants to praise the Lord and extol the Lord. And you know what? That's the last thing the psalmist says about himself. He's done talking about himself. Now he wants to talk to God. And why don't we listen? He says, great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. Glorious and majestic are his deeds. His righteousness endures forever. We have not gotten to the good news yet, have we? If you're talking with someone who doesn't care about football at all, and you say to them, Tom Brady is the best quarterback in the entire world, what will that person say? All right. Sure, if you think so. But if Tom Brady personally gave you $2 million and you're about to share it with the person you're talking to, now the fact that they don't care about football is irrelevant. They're very, very interested in what you have to say. God's greatness is kind of an abstract concept. It's, it's hard to care, isn't it? We know that we should say God is great, we know that God is good, but even the devil realizes that. Even the sinful nature realizes that God is good and great. How does God bring his greatness, his goodness, close to home? It's in two words that the psalmist used. He says, he causes his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. Of all the great things about God, the fact that he is gracious and compassionate is by far the most jaw-dropping, the most miraculous. That God created the entire universe in six 24-hour days, that's amazing. The fact that God sent a flood to destroy the world and save just a couple people and the animals, that's amazing. Of all the miracles in Scripture, Nothing, though, is as amazing as when Jesus came and dwelt among us and gave his life up for us. We would expect a great, powerful, infinite God to do great and powerful, infinite things. But when God chose to treat us not as our sins deserved, but to give us mercy when he was fully within his rights to give us punishment, that's greatness. That's God's glory. And that's how he takes his glory and hits it way close to home because that's your context. Jesus came to change your story. Whereas before your story was one of a wicked sinner who could never praise God, never come close to giving God any thanks or any worship, Jesus has changed that. So now, you are a sinner saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. You are a person whom God has purchased, redeemed, won, justified. 
and for whom God has conquered death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for you, bringing you into his holy family, giving you a new identity, a new self, a new heart, giving you even the ability to lift up worship and thanks to him. Remember your context, brothers and sisters. The facts that surround your life. Because you are surrounded by God's gracious compassion. That's who you are. That's how you dwell right now. The psalmist wants to point to his nation's history. He says he has shown his people the power of his works, giving them the lands of other nations. It's like you're a national park. And just like lots of national parks have a little placard somewhere where if something really special happened at, at that particular place and here on, in 1800s or whatever, this particular battle happened or someone was saved here or whatever, what does the placard in your heart say? Here is a, a, a soul, a blood-bought soul, a child of God, who is dearly loved. And God wrote that message. He wrote that placard and placed it in your heart at your baptism. The psalmist wants to point to events in his nation's history that are reminders, that are proof positive that God is loving and gracious. The psalmist looked back at his life through the lens of God's grace and compassion and understands everything differently. He points to the moment when Israel was able to conquer the land of Canaan, to take the land that was possessed by other nations, he says. On the surface, on the history pages, this was just one country taking over another country. But the psalmist understands it differently. This is God giving a home to his people. When you look back on your own personal history, how does your new context change the way you see the events of your life? When you look at who you are and where you've been through the lens of God's grace and compassion, what events in your own life do you point to to show God's mercy and love for you? Your baptism, which on the surface of it looks like God, somebody just throwing water over your head in this weird church ceremony, right? But what's the reality? God was spreading his compassion over you, clothing you in the righteousness of Christ, bringing you into his family. The last time you sat op with an open Bible, reading God's word, being comforted with what God has to say, what was God really doing in that simple picture of a person with an open Bible? He was sowing the seeds of peace in your life, strengthening your connection to him, Last Sunday, when we had communion together as a congregation, and this simple thing, this tradition that people can observe, what was God really doing? He was proving his love to you again and again and again. You don't have to look hard for evidence of God's love. All you have to do is think about your own history. And that's what worship is, brothers and sisters. It's taking the history of God's actions for you, just putting it into action. Speaking, singing God's praise back to him. But God is so good to you and me. He hasn't just been a good God in the past. He hasn't given up. 
He hasn't taken his hands off the wheel. He continues to be good forever. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever, enacted in faithfulness and uprightness. He provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. I think we trip ourselves up sometimes when we talk about God's holiness. Sometimes we get in our own way of understanding what it means that God is great, glorious, and holy. Maybe for some of us, maybe at some point we believe that God's holiness means he loves rules. He has a really long list of rules and he gets really happy when we just follow the rules because God enjoys rules. Or maybe we're tempted to say that we should obey God because he saved us and if we don't obey him, that's somehow just bad. The psalmist invites us into a much deeper, a much more joyous understanding of God's precepts. When he talks about precepts, he's talking about God's word, God's revealed moral will for us. God does have expectations. He does have things he wants us to do with our lives. He does have directives for how we should worship him with our lives. But his precepts are trustworthy. You can take God at his word. Because what do you find when you follow God's will for your life? you find that you're doing what's in your best interest. You find that you are living out what the psalmist and other writers of the Bible called the fear of the Lord. What things are we most afraid of? Things that stand a threat against us, right? Things against whose power we don't think we can stand on our own. We know we can't stand to God's power. We know we don't stand a chance if it's us versus God, but it's not you versus God, is it? He has forgiven your sins and brought you into relationship with him. So God's power will not be used to punish you for what you've done. But the fear of the Lord is not like being afraid of God. It's simply knowing that God is greater than us and trusting what he has to say, even above what we have to say. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And just like many people say that wisdom is knowledge in action, worship is memory in action. Because as you practice the fear of the Lord, you are worshiping God by remembering that this is the good and gracious God who won't lie to me, who won't lead me astray. And so when he has a directive for me to follow, it's worth listening to. Because I can trust God. All his precepts are trustworthy. And you find that when you're done worshiping with us this morning, we will have sung so many hymns together, prayed prayers together, confessed our faith together, but you realize that your worship is not done as you get back in your car and you go out for the rest of your life. Worship is a 24-7 thing always remembering who you are 
always putting yourself in the context of God's grace and love for you and doing everything that God puts before you with the goal of giving him thanks. Whether that's saying a thank you with your words or with your prayers or simply serving your neighbor who's in front of you out of love for God. Everything we do is worship because God's new context for us affects everything in our lives. So take a cue from Psalm 111 and take what you know about yourself, what you know about God, and simply put it into action because that's all that worship really is. Amen.